Good evening, folks, and welcome to the third Thursday Dharma Talk. So uh, this is my third, second talk in the three-part series on Samatha and Vipassana in Harmony. Last, last month I talked about Samatha, tonight I'll be talking about Vipassana, and then um, next month I'll talk about how the two practices can work in harmony. So I'll get into that a little bit more in a few minutes, but we'll start off with a sitting meditation uh, for about half an hour. And um, usually I give just short instructions at the beginning and then we're in silence. But I think actually I'm tonight I'm going to um, give some instructions. So the way that I teach Vipassana tonight's really like an overview of it. Um, there's many different objects of meditation that we can include in Vipassana, which is one of the wonderful things about it is that it really includes everything. So um, in the sitting, I'll be, you know, periodically encouraging you to add additional objects to uh, to the basic one, which is which is the breath. So you can do whatever you want, but I'll be um, offering that for your uh, for your contemplation as, as part of how to understand the possum in a, in a really systematic way. So go ahead and find your comfortable posture. And I do have posture instructions um, on Dharma Seed if you're interested. But the short version is it's always helpful to feel a sense of uprightness in our posture that supports alertness and also relaxation so we can really settle in to the meditation and the the peace that's possible with it. So in Vipassana, there are many objects that we can be aware of ultimately being aware of everything in our awareness, but it's helpful to, to have these kind of added as building blocks. So we start then with the breath as the basic object of awareness. And in Vipassana, we can know the breath wherever it's easiest to notice, wherever it's the most predominant. For a lot of people, that's at the belly. We can notice the rising and falling of the belly as their breath comes in and out. And it can be very grounding to have our awareness in the belly area. can also notice it at the chest or at the, at the nostril in the same areas we do in Samatha. Whatever is, whatever is easiest for you. So we'll start with a few minutes of Vipassana with the breath as our primary object.
And now adding other body sensations. The breath is one aspect of awareness of the body. And it's always there as something we can return to if we find we're lost in thought or agitated. The breath can be an anchor that is soothing and can help our awareness collect. Now adding other body sensations. Noticing your ear. Your body is meeting whatever you're sitting on. That sensation. Where your hands are resting. Hunger. Other other things we can notice as part of our body sensations, including that with a gentle curiosity, just being interested in what's arising in our awareness. Including all of it without getting attached to the pleasant, without needing to push away the unpleasant, without getting bored with the neutral, just being with things as they're arising naturally. And now including sound in what we're noticing, the sound of my voice that you're hearing, and the other sounds in the room, 
noticing if there's any aversion to the sound. Just letting the sound be there and noticing, noticing any impact, including breath, body sensation, and sound, and what we're noticing. Now, including thoughts. Noticing when thoughts are arising, not getting involved in the thoughts, but simply noticing that they're arising. And it's helpful using a one-word label, planning, wondering, worry, whatever 
the thought pattern is, or you can simply notice them without the one movement. including emotions, the emotions that might be present 
just again, if you have a one-word note for it, you can use that, feeling curious or tired. What's wrong? Simply noticing what's there and not making the change that or get involved. But noticing with a gentle curiosity of interest.
Now adding, noticing of the feeling tone of what we're noticing, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So if there's a, a sound, is it pleasant sound? Is it an unpleasant? We don't have much response to it. It's neutral. Being able to include that, allowing whatever is predominant in our awareness to draw our attention so that it becomes choiceless. And we're allowing the flow of experience to arise and pass all on its own, simply noticing.
Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started. So this is part two of Samatha and Vipassana in Harmony. And um, there's been a lot of confusion over the years about how the practices work together. And even in the day of the Buddha, if you look at what he said about these practices in his day, just like now, there were people who leaned towards Samatha, there were people who leaned towards Vipassana, or maybe people who wanted to just do one or the other. And and, um, and the Buddha really felt that it was best for people to do both, that that was the best possible choice, even though it was done that a person would choose would choose one or the other. He thought it was really optimal to have both. So it isn't really an either or. They can work harmoniously together and different lineages see this differently. In Burma, they tend to see more you do Samatha and then you do Vipassana. So it's seen more linearly in the Thai forest tradition. That's more like it's much more interwoven, like, you know, two feet up the mountain. And um, a lot of people don't know that, you know, Ajahn Chah, who was one of the more most respected of the Thai masters, was very um was very attained and John and could go into in the Samatha practice, he could have a jhana arise at one breath. So because monastics don't talk about their attainments, that it, it's not widely known, but it was it's heavily practiced that way in the Thai forest tradition. Um, and there's actually an article, the, the article I referenced um, at the beginning, which is you can download it on the Internet or it's also on my website that uh, a monk from the Ajahn Chah lineage who is about my age. He's American and is um, an abbot in a monastery in New Zealand now that he's been running for quite a while. And he calls this article a honed and heavy axe, Samatha and Vipassana in harmony. And I really like that framing because um, he talks about how in an axe, you need both the weight of an axe and the sharpness in order to really for the axe to do its job. And the weight is the Samatha, which really gives a power and a, and a, uh, you know, that depth of concentration and a weight to our practice where we can actually stay with the object that we are focusing on. And the Vipassana gives that, that sharp, um, ability to discern things and to really be clear with what it is that we are, uh, that is our object of meditation. So the two of those together are quite powerful. Whereas if, you know, you have an axe that's heavy, but isn't sharp, you know, it's, you can knock down a tree, but it takes an awful lot of work. And if you have the sharpness, but not the weight, you know, you're going to be hitting a tree with something that isn't very substantial. So it's really the two that make for uh, the optimal situation in this analogy that he uses. So um, Vipassana, um, just a, a little bit about my own history with Vipassana. A lot of people know me for my teaching on Samatha because of my book, Practicing the Jhanas. And um uh, but I've actually practiced Vipassana for a lot long more years than Samatha. I, uh, I started meditating at the age of 13 and what I was practicing then I didn't have a name for it. It was basically a body scanning kind of Vipassana. But, uh, I did that for years and then I practiced Vipassana for years as my main practice along with, with, uh, the Brahviharas. 
uh, for about another, well, I'd say altogether it was about 20 years, maybe not quite 20, before I even knew about Samatha. So, uh, so I've been a long-term Vipassana practitioner and then love the practice. And, um, I just never really taught it because there's so many wonderful Vipassana teachers out there by the time I started teaching. Oh, someone's cat is interested. That's fun. Um, so, uh, anyway, I love Vipassana. It's a great practice and I'm now including it in my teaching because of this you know, interest in, in really understanding how, how Vipassana can work with Samatha and different ways of having them be harmonious. Um, in the categories that I teach, the four neuroscience categories of meditation, those are heart-based, focused attention, which is Samatha, open monitoring, which is Vipassana, and then self-transcending. So Vipassana in, in the neuroscience world is considered an, an open monitoring practice where it's open. It's, you know, as I was bringing in these different objects, you can see ultimately Vipassana gets to a point of what's called choiceless awareness, where really everything that is in our awareness is can become the object that we aren't choosing. We're letting whatever is predominant become uh, the object that our awareness is on at that moment. So um, it's very open. It's a very open and spacious practice. And uh, so that is the category it's in according to the neuroscience. Vipassana, um, there's a lot of things that are compelling about Vipassana. And I know most of you probably, how many of you are Vipassana practitioners? Probably almost everybody. Yeah. So, you know, I may be telling you things you already know, but it's sometimes it's interesting to get a different take on it. Um, Vipassana, you know, I talk about why Samatha is compelling. Vipassana is extremely compelling as a practice. When the Buddha um, had his own journey and left the palace and went to find the best teachers he could find of the day, which is what any of us would do, too. He found two teachers that that were, you know, were his teachers, and they taught him the Samatha practice because that predates the Buddha. It's probably been around, They, you know, scholars and historians think it may have been around for 5,000 years. So he learned that from his own teachers, and they basically said, go forth and teach, you know, after he had completed the whole path in Samatha. And the Buddha went out, and he didn't teach right away and had his own his own practice, and um, he really wondered if there was more beyond what he had learned, and whether there were pra- was a practice or a way to be free that didn't depend on concentration, that was independent of that. And so that was when he and he added vipassana to what he had learned. And so this was really his contribution was finding a way to uproot the sense of um of the self the illusion of the self and the um personality patterning that causes suffering in such a way that we didn't have to have a high level of concentration all the time to maintain it so um so this was you know this is his one of his main contributions and that's really compelling that he could see that there was more than what he learned. And um, so Vipassana has so many, so many things to offer. It, it 
connects us directly to our experience. So all, in my opinion, all valid meditations bring us into the present moment, and they do that in different ways. With Vipassana, it's really obvious how we are in the present moment because we're with whatever is predominant in our awareness. I mean, the breath becomes an anchor, but literally anything that is arising in our awareness is a is the object. So it connects us with the present in such a um, a direct and compelling way. And it's a great way to be in the present, not just when we're on the cushion, but when we're moving around in life. You know, there's a way that if we're really present with what's happening, whether we're cooking something or driving or at work, uh, it brings a richness to our life that we don't have if we're lost in thought all the time. You know, we're not even there really. When we're lost in thought unconsciously, uh, we're not present. We're not really in our lives. So in a way, there's there's nobody there. So Vipassana brings us really into contact, direct contact with our experience and makes life so much richer because of that. And also um, in Samatha, we're cultivating this muscle of concentration by coming back to the breath over and over. In Vipassana, what we're cultivating is the ability, well, among other things, is the ability to be with whatever's happening. So whatever is arising in our awareness, we're noticing it, maybe noting it, um, and we're letting it be as it is. We're letting it arise and pass and not getting involved in it, not getting identified with it. And the pleasant things, if we we can enjoy them, there's no prohibition against enjoying them, but we're not getting it identified. We're We're allowing them to arise and pass. And if we notice we're getting attached, We're going to feel suffering if we get attached. So we get to see that it's fine to enjoy things. But when we get attached to the pleasant, we start suffering because ultimately this thing is going to pass. And um, with the unpleasant, we can see, wow, I'm, I'm really adding to my own suffering. Like if maybe there's a noise during my meditation and uh, that noise in itself is neutral. I mean, every noise in itself really is neutral, um, unless somebody's really suffering, then that's not neutral. But, you know, most noises in themselves are neutral. When we're meditating and a noise starts bothering us, we're adding that suffering to the noise. So, you know, to see how how little tolerance maybe we have for just being with something unpleasant, just the fact that it's unpleasant, can I learn how to just let it be unpleasant without adding to the suffering of phenomena that are not what I would really prefer. And as we get better and better at that, we get less reactive to things that are unpleasant. We can tolerate them better. And this translates over into our life. And then the neutral, a lot of times neutral doesn't get much attention, but these days I think neutral deserves a lot of attention because we're getting so much less um, skilled at being with neutral. I mean, in the old days, you, if, you, if you got out to pump gas, it was one minute of standing there, nothing happening. I mean, maybe it was unpleasant. Maybe some people like pumping gas. I don't know. But for the most part, it's fairly neutral. Well, now, you know, you've got um, 
entertainment. You've got a TV right at the gas pump. So, you know, I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen this, but you can't even pump gas now and have it be neutral. You have to be entertained. So, you know, we've gotten into a society where the the distraction is just pretty much constant now. And it's doing a lot of really negative things to our actual hardware and software that they're studying now to where people can't be neutral. You know, I mean, in the old days, if we were standing in line at the store, we weren't looking at our phone every 30 seconds to see if anything had happened or sitting there scrolling through our text. But if you go to the grocery store now, if you look in the line, everybody's doing that almost. So um, can we just be with neutral? And can it be okay when there's no entertainment happening or do we, do we feel uncomfortable with neutral? So, um, and bored. Are we trying to avoid the boredom of that? So Vipassana is helping us build equanimity in the face of all of these things. The pleasant, the unpleasant, neutral on the cushion. So that when we're off the cushion also, we can have so much more equanimity in our life. When things happen, we can be with them and, and enjoy the pleasant and, you know, tolerate the unpleasant and not get bored if things aren't exciting all the time. And, uh, you know, it also helps us to really get to know ourselves, to know our own patterns. And uh, this is one of the things I love about Vedana, the last um, thing that I introduced was noticing whether we are relating to something as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, because that really helps us get into our relationship to the defilements. So in Buddhism, we have the five hindrances, and those boil down to the three defilements of desire, which is really getting wrapped up into the pleasant and wanting it, Um, aversion, which is not having much tolerance for the unpleasant and either having anger or hatred or fear when the unpleasant is happening. Uh, and then um, a delusion or ignorance, which is really about uh, uh, neutral, falling asleep on ourselves. When things are happening that when it's not exciting, do I fall asleep on myself or do I fall asleep on myself just because I can avoid things? By falling asleep on myself, it's, I just get foggy. So, um, uh, you know, all of, all of what we notice in Vipassana, we're really getting an insight into our own workings in a really specific way. And, um, and ultimately this can lead to insight, which the, the word Vipassana means insight. So this is where Insight Meditation, Tucson, and, and uh, you know, IMS and Spirit Rock are all Insight Meditation um, lineage um, centers. And um, so Insight, a lot of times people, you know, we can have two sort of different levels of Insight. One is psychological insights into our own inner workings, and those are really useful and helpful and uh, make our lives better. You know, as we start getting seeing our patterns and getting more freedom from the compulsiveness of those patterns. And then there's a deeper level of insight, which is really what the word insight is referring to in um, in Vipassana, which is insight into the more fundamental nature of reality. 
into the those basic characteristics of reality that when we really are in touch with them can lead to um, liberation and awakening. So Vipassana, all of the four practice categories of heart-based, focused attention, open monitoring, and self-transcending all can lead to awakening. Um, technically, in Theravadan Buddhism, insight into the three characteristics, fundamental characteristics of existence is what leads to awakening. So Vipassana is a practice that can lead to that, which is very, very profound. So the stages of practice then in Theravada Buddhism are sila, which is really about wholesome living, samatha, which we talked about last month, and then vipassana. So you can see kind of where where the um, progression is in terms of of vipassana fitting into into the categories of practice in Theravada Buddhism. Um, and then we have the objects of awareness in Vipassana, the body, which is what we start with, and the breath is included there, mind states, which includes emotions and thoughts, um, Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then um, another, these are part of the four foundations of mindfulness, are, are the categories of Buddhist um, uh Dharmas, it's considered dharmas like the hindrances and the seven, um, the seven factors of awakening and other, there are other categories that we can particularly be looking for in, uh, Vipassana and noticing in different ways. So these are all objects that can arise in Vipassana, but ultimately really that the when we're sitting doing vipassana choiceless awareness becomes kind of the destination where we're allowing whatever is predominant in awareness to arise and coming back to the breath as needed for stabilization and and to if we're just you know mind wandering that can help us come back to a a sense of building some concentration so that we can actually stay with our moment to moment experience without falling off and and just getting lost and identified with our experience. So there are really three styles of Vipassana. I was kind of pointing to these a little bit in the meditation. Um, And the first is Burmese, the Burmese style where we're noting. So in Burmese, in the Burmese lineage, they use noting where we're actually using a label for our experience. So, you know, like if we notice we're planning or if something is unpleasant, these would all be one word notes that we use. And the idea of noting is that um, it's like in the Samatha, we use counting. So for those of you who've practiced Samatha, there's the option of counting one to eight and eight to one, you know, on each in and out breath is, is one number. And the counting helps us be a little more rigorous and connected to the to the object of the breath and the samatha. In Vipassana, the count the noting is basically the equivalent of counting. So noting helps us be more connected with the object. That's the idea of it is that it it gives us um, clarity. It gives us a contact with that phenomena rather than just having things be kind of a mush that's flowing by. Um, 
and it uh, it can give us some distance from it so that we're not overly identified with what's happening. Um, the downside of noting, just like with counting, it's the same thing. The downside of noting is that it's it's creating a conceptualization of our experience. So it takes us away from the direct contact with that experience because we're having it, you know, have an idea about it rather than just being with it in a non-conceptual way. So how many of you use noting? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's the Spirit Rock IMS lineage is kind of a hybrid of the Burmese noting and the Thai force noticing. And depending on what teacher you go to, you may hear different instructions about that, but it's kind of a, a hybrid. Um, so the next style then is Thai, the Thai force tradition, which is really more about noticing. And uh, the noting isn't emphasized as much. So we're really noticing our experience without necessarily putting a one word label on it. And uh, noticing, I mean, the advantage of the noticing is that it can happen faster. So like on long retreats, most people, most of the students I work with and for myself, I usually, if I'm doing a passing on a retreat, I'll start with noting and then I'll end up going to noticing. Um, it just seems to accelerate things starting with noting, just like with Samata, then the counting can give a sense of rigor, but at some point it gets kind of clunky and it's too much. So it can be useful to drop the noting at some point for those, for people who like uh, to use noting because it's it's like you're adding something that isn't actually necessary to be in contact with your experience. So how many of you mainly use noticing when doing Vipassana? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, either either one is fine. They both um, have a, a long history of, um, of use within Theravada Buddhism. And then the third... Um, the third category, how any Goenka practitioners out there? Anybody who's done Goenka retreats? Yeah, I get a lot of Goenka people. It's a lot of, you know, it's if depending what lineage you're in, you may not even know about Goenka retreats, but millions and millions of people every year are going to Goenka retreats. And um, uh, so it's been a huge service of the Goenka lineage to make those retreats available all over the world. And I get a lot of Goenka people and uh, Goenka in their, that version of Vipassana, we start with the Samatha for a few days. They don't take it um, past like access concentration. They don't get into jhana at all. Uh, and then they switch over to Vipassana and they do body scanning. So it's pretty much, it ends at body scanning. They don't include the other objects at all. So it's kind of interesting that they're probably the Vipassana lineage with the most people globally participating in it. They don't use any of those other objects that I was going through. All they do is body, breath and body scanning. That's it. So, you know, when I get going to people, they're shocked that there's all these other objects that are part of Vipassana. So, you know, it's just like with Samatha, people think that, um, you know, there's a lot of different interpretations of what Vipassana is. And uh, any Tibetan Buddhist practitioners in the group? 
tonight? Yeah, just one. So in Tibetan Buddhism, also he has Vipassana, and they also interpret it differently. There in Tibetan Buddhism, there's Samatha with support, which is having an object, Samatha without support, which is like Vipassana and the choiceless awareness. And then there's Samatha, then, then there's Vipassana, actual Vipassana in Tibetan Buddhism is very conceptual. They aren't actually being with the objects at all. They're, they're using more of a logic to see the emptiness and things. So it's, it's very different than how we know to Vipassana and Theravadan Buddhism. I think to the Theravadan, um, presentation of it is much more effective actually so uh, they don't use it a lot in tibetan buddhism they there's a lot of skipping over of that part um so you know a lot of different interpretations of it and really finding what feels like the best fit for you and the most useful just like with samatha is uh is important if you're going to practice vipassana as one of your main practices so um, working with hindrances then in Vipassana, it's it's different than Samatha. We're, in Vipassana, we're really um, investigating. Investigation is one of the big faculties that we're using a lot in Vipassana, where we're really curious about our experience. We're being curious about what's arising, and we can investigate that. So like pain is a good example where if pain is arising in Vipassana, it's possible to actually like not move and let the pain be there. I mean, this is if it's not doing any harm, actual physical harm to you. Um, but to be there and to be curious about the pain and to investigate it fully and even something as unpleasant as pain can uh, turn in if we're not bringing our conceptual mind to it and we're just with the direct experience of what it feels like. Well, is it pinching? Is it pushing? Is it tingling? Is it searing? Is it, you know, there's probably 50, well, maybe not 50, but 20 different descriptions we can have of what the pain actually feels like. That starts opening it up rather than the idea of pain, which we're automatically going to resist because it's in our DNA to get away from pain. We're hardwired for that. But if if we stay with it, it's possible for, you know, not too huge levels of pain to actually turn into a kind of um, of uh, tingling, blissful sensation, which is really shocking. Or if if we're with something like anger, uh, it's hard to be with that sometimes, but feeling anger as, well, it's heat in my chest and I feel like I'm going to explode and um, I feel like energy and I just feel like I want to hit something or, you know, we're not saying this inside, but if we're really in touch with what something like anger actually feels like, it can open up through that investigation of being curious without uh, without judgment and uh, letting that experience open up. So this is how we work with hindrances generally in Vipassana is by really staying with whatever is arising and being curious about it. And, you know, if it's something that's painful and difficult, bringing compassion, bringing in some metta, 
to have compassion for, um, you know, how, how this became instituted in our consciousness. Another way of working with hindrances is to come back to the breath. So as with in Samatha, when we really get stuck, we bring in little Vipassana. In Vipassana, when we get really stuck and we're just in mind wandering, we can bring in some Samatha where we come back to the breath as an anchor, and that helps bring the mind stream together some and to, and to have us be settled so that we're not just lost in thought. Uh, as we're trying to sit. So this is, I'm just touching in a little bit on how the two, they're already working together. Even if we don't know that they were, you know, we like for Vipassana people who don't know about Samatha, they're already doing Samatha coming to the breath and, and Samatha people who don't know Vipassana, they're, they're doing it because when a hindrance gets so bad, you can't do anything else. You investigate it and you're using Vipassana. So, um, so the two practices, you know, in Vipassana, we are applying a little bit of Samatha when the mind stream is just all over the place. And that can help settle so that we actually can be with what's arising without getting completely lost in thought or identified with, you know, something in our experience to the point where we're not actually witnessing it or we're not we're not knowing it. We're in it. We're, we're consumed by it. And we've actually lost the meditation. So um, I think I'll stop there and uh, see if there's any questions or comments. Yeah, Michael. I just have a technical question. Um, I'm actually uh, involved in a training with uh, Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock a mindfulness meditation training. It's a two-year program that they do. And uh, I'm just curious because I am new to your, um, to, to your, your teachings. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, so really my, my most, I have a few questions, but the one I'm most curious about is for me um, be, with my uh, training in mindfulness practice, it seems like Vipassana is kind of, or maybe mindfulness is the umbrella term um, for Vipassana. It seems like I'm finding it hard, I guess, to uh-huh. everything right. you're sharing with the word mindfulness. And of course, you you included the foundations in your in your sharing just now. So you used mindfulness and the foundations. Um, Right. So how does the word mindfulness fit in? Is that kind of what you're pointing to? Yeah, we maybe specifically with Vipassana. Yeah. 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 Well, this is kind of one of those things that I think we're in a period of evolution within within Western Buddhism. It's not so much true in Asia, but the word mindfulness If you look at the word mindfulness in Buddhism, it really just means being aware of your object of meditation. So we have mindfulness in Samatha. We have mindfulness in in the Brahma Viharas and Metta and all the other Brahma Viharas. Any meditation we're doing has mindfulness as we have to be aware of our object. Otherwise, we're not meditating, you know. So the word mindfulness actually applies technically. From a technical standpoint, it applies to every meditation. It's not unique to Vipassana. 
What's happened though in, in like the last 20 or 25 years is that the word mindfulness, it really started with MBSR, I think. That became so, and I, and I did one of my month long retreats when I was in my 20s. John Cabotson was on his offer right next to me. And, and he's a very, very, very solid meditator, let me tell you. But he hadn't come up with MBSR yet then. He was, you know, taking notes and things. And so a lot of the word mindfulness um, came from that. That became where it got spread so widely, even though if you really look at MBSR, it includes Samatha, Vipassana, and Metta. It includes all three. But it became, it started becoming equated with Vipassana to now where when people say the word mindfulness, they think you're talking about Vipassana. So it's, it's really a development that's happened in, in modern culture. Um, and, you know, I don't use the word mindfulness meditation for Vipassana. If you actually listen to what I've been saying, I've never once used the word mindfulness for Vipassana as a medita- as the name of the meditation. Because really, you know, in Buddhism, mindfulness applies to every single meditation out there. So it does apply to Vipassana, but it's not, it's doesn't, the word Vipassana means insight. Yes, so. whereas, and I, I just, uh, the way I understood it from directly from the Pali, Asati is just the, the capacity to be aware. Right, right, which so we're going to have. So broad. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so mindfulness, you could say that mindfulness applies to everything, um, but in the term, in the way of mindfulness being, um, Equated with Vipassana, if you really look at the practices, you Vipassana isn't an umbrella for all the other meditations. It's one meditation, Samatha is one, and the Brahma Viharas, really, there's four Brahma Viharas, but if you take them as a category, they're one. And then if you go to Tibetan Buddhism and add something like Rigpa, then you've got the four categories that just happen to be being studied in neuroscience because those four categories are doing different things to our consciousness. So it's kind of cool that Buddhism knew that, you know, without, without putting electrodes on our heads. Yeah. So that's, I mean, to me, that's, that's how I hold it is that we've got these four categories. Mindfulness applies to all four categories. But if you're, if you're speaking to the general public, if you say mindfulness, they're going to think, Basically, you mean being present with what's happening. And that is more like Vipassana. Yeah, yeah. We, as teachers, we struggle with the same thing. So <laughs> I remember I went to the International Vipassana Teachers Conference about, well, now it's probably been at least 10 years ago. And there was a whole session on this, on what do we do about the word mindfulness getting so that it's changing, you know, and of course we can't do anything about it. It's the, the horse is out of the barn. You go to the grocery store and there's mindfulness magazine right next to the checkout. I mean, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's got its own life. Yeah. But it's good. It's all good. People are wanting to meditate and, and that's an awesome thing for the world. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Other questions or comments? I'll comment. Hi. Ethan. Hi. I'm old. 
So, um, you know, I do do, I do do noting, noting, um, but I find that there's usually a negative affect or connotation. It's like I'll be sitting and I'm like, oh, there I go planning, plans, planning, planning. And, you know, I'll bring myself back to the breath, but this may be hard to, uh, convey, but, um, I don't know. There's just this, this time, this time when I'm like, it's like, I don't know. I'm like away. I feel like I'm away from my meditation when I'm like noting in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I'm planning or, you know, I'm, there goes my mind again. It's like, I should be back at, you know, my breath kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There can, well, there is a way this is where, the conceptualization does take us away from the immediate experience because yeah. now we're having to have a word. Sometimes you have to figure out what the word is. So that can be a thing in itself, you know, like right. uh, what if you're having a thought, you don't know what category it's in exactly, then you could spend time figuring out what the word is to describe the thought. So, yeah, so that is a little <clears throat> bit less immediate. The, why, what's, what's good about the noting? I mean, why, why are you using it? Have you, have you found it helpful? Because I find that at times my mind gets off my breath, especially, you know, from doing Samatha. Um, and, uh, it's funny. I don't use it. It, it doesn't seem to be like a technique of meditation. It seems to be a tool to bring me back to my breath. And I'm not sure that that's, the correct way to look at it or to practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Vipassana, the breath, in Samatha, the breath is the object. If you're doing Anapanasati, it's the object. If you're not on it, then you're off the object. So there isn't, it's very, very streamlined in that way. So you're basically, you are coming back and you don't even need to know what it is. So in Samatha, there's no need for noting. If you want to do it, it's fine, but it's really in, in Samatha, you, it doesn't, I mean, it's good to notice your patterns. So that there is a benefit there because then off the cushion, you can be working with that. Um, but you don't need to note it in Samatha. In Vipassana, we're using, in Samatha, what is like the noting is the counting, which is really helping us maintain the rigor of staying with the breath. In Vipassana, you don't need to stay with the breath all the time. I mean, when we get to what's known as as choiceless awareness, which is kind of the ultimate stage of Vipassana, where really it's it's almost like stream of consciousness, Mm -hmm. where like right now I'm I'm seeing my hands moving because I can see I'm a little box on the screen, you know, and I'm seeing you and your head nodding and I'm hearing my voice and I can feel my butt on the seat. And so, you know, that's more like the stream of consciousness that can become Vipassana. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily have to go back to the breath as long as you're not lost. What can happen, though, in Vipassana, if it's too wide, like um, you can't just go straight to choiceless awareness because it's too much, you know, when one is learning Vipassana or building up even in a sitting to add 
certain objects or maybe do a whole sitting just on sound or just on body sensation or just on emotions or Vedana. I think it's really interesting to do a whole sitting where you're just noticing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You know, that can be really insightful. So, um, so there isn't, you don't really have to go back to the breath the same way that you do in Samatha because ultimately everything that's arising is potentially an object of, uh, of awareness in the Pasana. That's, that's very helpful. Yeah, it's just that it's hard to jump straight there, right. you know, because our concentration is, you know, if we're doing yeah. things in life, we're not, our concentration when we sit down isn't usually that strong to where we can just stay with it at this minute level without going off and losing, losing track of where we are. Do you ever suggest or practice where you start with Samatha and then whatever, just evolve into a Vipassana during a sit? Yeah, well, that's what Dzogchen does. So, you know, this is part of why I love teaching the four, all four categories, because in Dzogchen, you're using, you start with heart base, then you go to Samatha, then you go to Vipassana, and then if if you're stable, then you try to go to the self-transcending. Um, mm. So, and I'll talk more about that next week for mm. one who isn't actually doing Dzogchen, how, how you can use the two practices together mm-hmm. so a lot of you know a lot of times in vipassana they you know it may not be said that samatha is happening but like when i used to go to the month-long retreats every year we would do you know three or four five days of breath only before we went on and the point of doing that was to really stabilize the concentration so yeah you can do that in your sitting where you I yeah. mean, you don't have to necessarily be doing it here with the Samatha. You could do it at the belly or wherever you notice it, but to do, you know, to do the breath, to be with the breath until you feel like you're fairly stable and then start opening it up. That's usually what's recommended with Vipassana. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that means you're with the breath the whole sitting because, you know, that that's what's needed in terms of the concentration level. No, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, whatever, you you don't have to use the noting. If you're finding that it's clunky, it's just like the counting. Some people love the counting and it really works for them. Other people, it just, it doesn't. And the noticing feels a lot cleaner and more um, direct, more immediate. It just feels like thinking. It feels like I'm being taken out of my, my meditation. Just for me, it feels like I'm thinking too much. Yeah, well, try have what happens yeah. when you have you tried not noting? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you just do noticing instead of noting? Um, it's fine too, you know. <laughs> I think you made a good point. It's like I I note when I find that my aware. It's just you know I'm it's sort of too hitting, big. Yeah, it's too yeah. big. So yeah, it's like oh right, yeah. Right. Yeah. I get a lot of people who just get lost with Vipassana where it's too much. And that's where, um, you know, I like breaking it down where you're including more things because uh, adding, say, the body awareness, mm-hmm. you know, that's manageable. And then having emotions come in. If you, And then if it just 
going straight to choiceless awareness, it can be too, too loose for a lot of people. So, you know, you, you might try including categories and that's a way of bringing it into where it's a little bit more contained rather than just being completely open. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Health. Thanks. Sure. Other comments or questions? Hamsa, am I saying yes. that right? Yes. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much for, for being here with us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, this past year I've been, exploring a number of different uh, online retreats. And one of them is going through a Venerable Analio series. Um, and most recently, the Compassion and Emptiness, uh, uh, where we go through the four Brahma Viharas, mm-hmm. and then we go into boundless spaciousness, then consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. Now, my question is, uh, the latter four, would that be referred to as uh, choiceless awareness, in a sense? So the four that you're talking about, those are considered, those are what's called the boundless, or well, they're, in Buddhism, they're called either the immaterial realms or the mm-hmm. formless realms. Mm-hmm. So they're considered, they're part of, usually they're part of Samatha, which the Brahma mm-hmm. Viharas are also Samatha practices, even though mm-hmm. they, they have a different effect on our consciousness than like mindfulness of breathing does. So that's mm-hmm. why in the brain research, they're separated. But in Buddhism, they are Samatha practices. So they have the potential for jhanas. Mm-hmm. And are you, are you familiar with the term oh, jhanas? Yeah. Yes. yeah. So there's the potential for jhanas, which are meditative absorptions where our mind stream becomes so unified that it is pulled into a state called a, a jhana. I'm just saying this for, you know, mm-hmm. everybody may not know what jhanas are. So, um, there are material jhanas, which there's mm-hmm. four of, of those potentially, and then there's immaterial jhanas, which are considered actual realms of existence beyond the physical. Mm-hmm. So we have the physical realm, mm-hmm. which is where our bodies are in all form, and then um and then there are formless dimensions, which are the the base of balanced space, base of balanced consciousness, base of, of nothingness and base of neither perception or non-perception. And it's possible to um, be aware of those in our consciousness. And so those are, but they are considered, you know, fairly, they're non-dual realms. So they're, when those are being accessed, they, the, the me, the sense of the separate self is dormant. So they're considered fairly high attainments in Buddhism. Um, so they're not the same as choiceless awareness, but one could, like in Zen, Zen is really, Zen is 100%, you know, when you're doing Zazen, you're basically just sitting. You're sitting without any objects. It's just completely open. And the point of Zen is to try and realize non-duality in a moment. You know, mm-hmm. that's a moment of realization of non-duality. And, and in my understanding, 
that is what is being tapped into as a moment of realization of a non-dual, of a formless dimension. So I have a whole talk on this on my website called Dimensions of Non-Duality, where I get into mm-hmm. all of those and how it relates to jhanas and, and how we can understand that. Like in Christianity, non-duality is mainly seen through love. And so that is a boundless dimension. The, the, in Zen, there's like in the Hindu path, there's a different boundless dimension that's focused on. And um, anyway, so if there is a choicelessness in terms of in Zen, when we're just sitting, it's like choiceless awareness. But in Theravada and Buddhism, when we say choiceless awareness, it isn't necessarily pointing to the, the boundless dimensions. They aren't, yeah. they aren't necessarily related, even though they could arise in a person's practice. We can, act, you know, moments of non-duality can happen to anyone at any time because basically those are those are ways of being in touch with our deeper nature beyond the body they're they're beyond the form realm so they're beyond the personality and beyond the body so they are manifesting us sitting here right now mm-hmm. all of it is coming from those dimensions and from the unconditioned Basically, in Buddhism, we're talking about the deathless or the unconditioned. Um, so those can be accessible at any moment, but we have to really have a, um, it's a moment of, of the me going dormant temporarily. And that's. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, what I found <clears throat> doing the practice, it, it felt very, of course, Venerable Nalio has, uh, meditations, specific meditations for each one and integrating the seven factors of awakening as well, having us work with all of that. And, and I found that to be really waterlogged with co- concepts. Uh, but I, but I continued to work with that. And, um, and then I would, as I would get into the boundless spaciousness, I had also taken some online retreats with Guy and Sally Armstrong. And they take you into the big sky meditation uh-huh. uh, that Joseph Campbell has done. And I thought, well, is that choiceless awareness or, or what is this? I was just trying to sort this out. And then I would go back into the Anapanasati Sutta going into the third tetrad because when I would go into the boundless consciousness, that I could somehow once moving through body, the Vedanas and then the third tetrad of the Anapanasati, that seemed like that boundless consciousness that uh, Venerable Analio was talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, these, the, the, um, I'm, oh gosh, we're, we're over time, so we'll need to end, but you know, the, are the boundless consciousness is available to anyone at any time because it is our deeper nature. So it's, possible that you are experiencing that how it's talked about in different traditions and in different suttas and and you know it it um it's not always as clear as it could be but you may be experiencing that because it is always available so i wish we had more time to talk about it but it sounds like you're having great meditation so keep up keep it up Okay, everyone. Well, lovely to be with you. And, um, and next month I will be talking about then how Samatha and Vipassana can work together more, more actively in harmony. So I hope to see you then.
Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.